and lead us not into temptation, an apropos way to make our way to the Word this morning, to Genesis 39. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. We'll be going back to the same place we were when last we were here in Genesis 39. We'll pick up at verse 6 of that chapter. And uh, as we do, I'll remind you, and you've heard me say this before, but I think it's worth remembering, especially as we go back to the same text again this Sunday, that uh, the Scripture comes to us in many layers. And virtually every text in the Bible has some different strata of meaning, different levels of teaching and of application in, in every text. On the level of redemptive history, for instance, we have the unfolding of God's purposes to bring about and to purchase a people for himself. But then in the same text, on another level, there there may be also some important lesson for us, some wisdom, some exhortation or instruction for us as well. Genesis 39 just happens to be a, a wonderful example of just this sort of text, so rich with meaning that One or even two visits to such a text uh, in a series like this simply are not enough. I could not leave this text behind without setting before you one of the most important lessons of it. For here we have in the Bible one of the clearest examples, teaching by instruction, uh, teaching by example, that is, of how a saint, how a child of God, must resist temptation. Now you remember that Joseph has been sold by his brothers into slavery, and that sale was just the first, actually another, among a string of providences that would bring Joseph to the house of Potiphar. Joseph rises in stature and in authority and in power in Potiphar's house, But uh, he has not gone unnoticed in the meantime by Potiphar's wife. We pick up then in the middle of verse 6 in Genesis 39, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, as has already been prayed this morning, your spirit must open our eyes to receive your word. But also, as we have been reminded and, and offered up to you in prayer this morning, what a powerful word. This is the power of God himself when your spirit illumines and applies the same text that he has inspired even thousands of years ago that you have preserved for us to this very day. Speak to us, we pray, Father, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 9, verse 39, verse 6, in the middle. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, 
He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. The late Dr. James Boyce related a story he himself received from another pastor several hundred years ago on the island of Cape Hatteras off of the shore of North Carolina. There were men whose business it was to get ships to run aground just on the shoals just off of the island. These men were wreckers and they made their living by gathering up the parts and cargo of such ships. With a lighted lantern fastened to the head of an old nag, a horse, these men of Nag's Head, for that was the name of their village, walked up and down and, and back and forth. Out at sea in the darkness of the mid-Atlantic night, ships that were searching for a passage uh, past the islands would mistake that, that bobbing light for, the, for a stern of a ship that had uh, supposedly found safe passage. They would turn inland and run aground on diamond shoals. In the morning, the wreckers would come and gather the timber for their new houses and utensils for their kitchens and money for their purses. It was a thriving business. In fact, even now, visitors to Nag's Head are shown old houses purportedly built with and furnished with the material taken from more than 2,300 ships that perished off this coast, either by accident or by treachery. Now, I went to the Nag Head's official website, and it says that the truth of that account cannot be substantiated. Dr. Gilbert may substantiate it for you, not because he was there, but because he might be better able to tell you. But I can tell you this, Christians, there are wreckers who are busy about seeking your demise, your shipwreck. There are wreckers who desire to have you and to take you and to destroy you. They are three, we say traditionally in the church. They are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And by world, of course, we don't mean a round globe that uh, makes its orbit around the sun but rather a system of thoughts, of values, of principles, or, or lack of them. By the flesh, we don't mean merely the body, but the body as it is under the influence of sin. We call flesh all that is in us that seeks to lead us astray and into disobedience. And we know of the devil. He's described in Scripture as a roaring lion who seeks to devour us. The Apostle Peter tells us to resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood all throughout the world. Now, we're not told directly which of these three or what combination are at work in this history in Genesis 39 in the house of Potiphar. 
There is certainly the world. Potiphar's wife is simply acting as the world acts, reaching for that for which the world reaches, living according to the world, for she is not only in the world, but of the world. And then none of us, not a single healthy male among us anyway, can doubt for a moment that Joseph's flesh rose up within him to make this a sore temptation for several different reasons. And though we do not know directly from this passage that the devil was at work, it's hardly a stretch of the imagination to say that God unfolding his covenantal redemptive work here now would have caught Satan's eye. And as the line of of the covenant and its development was still in these early days of infancy, Satan took a great interest in making every effort to undo the work of God. All three wreckers were there, at least represented in the home of Potiphar that day. And here's the interesting point. Those same wreckers seek your demise today, Christian. Sometimes alone, often in conspiracy with one another. They are, as we sing, sometimes they are raging thy steps around, striving, luring, goading into sin. We call this dastardly work temptation. And that's exactly what it is. It is that enemy that every one of you must face every day, every hour, indeed every minute. Temptation is constantly with us at every turn. And those of you of a more sensitive spirit, you who are mature in the faith, know this best. Temptation is incessantly at your heels and in your faces. There are temptations like this one that Joseph faces here, sexual temptations. I needn't tell you that we are living in a day and time and place that is sexually supercharged. From things that were once even recently innocuous, billboards and television advertisements, to the overt appeals to the mind in television programs and movies and magazines and websites, and to the body and the workplace and even on the street corner. Sexual temptation rages in America today in ways it is only raged in other countries and in ancient cultures. And it is getting worse at the moment. But sexual is only one species of temptation. There are thousands of others. There is the temptation to laziness. There is the temptation to the hatred of others and the maintaining of a record of wrongs. There is the temptation to pride, to gluttony, to stealing from others, and even from God, to dishonoring your parents, 
to desecrating the Sabbath day by using it for work, to using God's name in vain, to coveting. Daily we are tempted to substitute merely good things for excellent things. The appearance of faithfulness for true obedience. We're tempted to waste time and to waste money. And I've only begun to scratch the surface. Within relationships, there is the temptation to give our employers merely eye service to our wives, much less than the love of Christ, and to our husbands, much less than the godly submission that the Scripture prescribes. To our children, alas, we are tempted to give too little of the things they really need and way too much of the things that they would really do better without. And then there are things that tempt you and, and do so in a way that they don't tempt me. And things that tempt me, it would make you wonder how I could possibly be tempted by that. Now, whatever your temptation may be, the Scripture tells you, and it tells me plainly, what our course must be. Quite simply, it is to resist. That's the word. We must resist temptation. What that means is that you must fight against temptation. You must oppose temptation. You must withstand temptation and its force and effect in your life. If those things sound war-like to your ears, then that's exactly what they should sound like. Because this is war. You have real enemies. And the chief weapon in their arsenals is the weapon of temptation. It's remained a chief or a, a weapon of theirs. And the fact that it has remained a chief weapon in their arsenals for all this time, for all of history really, is only eloquent witness to the fact that it is so effective in achieving their desired end. Now I say we are at war. And we are. And in war, among other things, Two are very important. One is that we understand the enemy and his weapons. And the other is that we must know what is effective at defeating him. First, then, let us understand our enemies, and particularly, let us understand their weapon of temptation. What is it that makes this weapon so effective? Well, we see at least three things that make temptation so strong, so powerful, even in the life of a seasoned Christian, and sometimes especially in the life of a seasoned Christian. First, we see temptation's strength in the fact that it is opportunistic. That is to say, temptation waits for its perfect opportunity to strike. Often, when we are weak, usually when other supports are for whatever reason absent from us, leaving us most vulnerable. Look at Joseph. What do you notice about him? 
First of all, he's, he's away from home. The support structure of family is gone. He, he might as well have been 2,000 miles from Palestine. His ties were pretty much cut. And now he was living in a foreign land. You, you know that phrase, when in Rome? Why not when in Egypt? Do as the Egyptians do. Christians, beware of your vulnerability to temptation, particularly when your circumstances change. Sexual temptation does not come at you with nearly as much strength when you are in a room full of people as it does when you're alone, or even more when you're alone with someone else. It does not come to you nearly as powerfully when you are at home as when you are on the road. You men who travel in your business, you know exactly of what I speak. When removed from some distance from the eye of your family or those to whom you are accountable, for some reason it's also easy to think of God as being at a distance. Sexual temptation does not come nearly as much with as much power to those who are happily married, at least not according to the Apostle Paul, as to those who are single or divorced or widowed, as a man or a woman. Temptation will seize upon just those opportunities. Temptation seizes on the opportunity of success, too. Let a person taste some success. Let him be promoted. Let him come into a place of particular recognition like Joseph had. And temptation of all sorts will come rushing in with a great force. All of those arguments Joseph gave, did you notice that? That his, his master trusted him implicitly. That everything was in his charge that he was great in Potiphar's house, as great as Potiphar himself, in fact, that Potiphar had not held anything back from him. I say all of those arguments could just as easily have been arguments for Joseph to do this thing, to acquiesce to Potiphar's wife. Christian, watch out for the change of circumstances in your life, even your successes, because temptation is opportunistic. It seizes its opportunity. Second, it is persistent. One of the characteristics of your enemies in the use of this weapon is that they are persistent. Temptation comes, whatever sort of temptation it is, it comes time and time and time again over and over and over, like Potiphar's wife. Every day, day after day, she tried. It must have been to Joseph like, like one boxer's blow to the head after another. One after another, day after day, Potiphar's wife took her swings at his head. 
Most other men would have been worn thin, would have given in to her persistence. That's how temptation is. Temptation cannot succeed the first time. It will try over and over again. It says its slogan is try. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. Beware, Christian, of the persistence of temptation. Third, beware of temptation's persuasion. Can you hear the thoughts of Joseph's flesh now? As he feels the the touch of Potiphar's wife on his back, on his arm. Can you hear what Joseph's flesh was crying out? You've earned this man. You've worked hard for this. Hey, you're a grown man. Still, you're unmarried. It's only natural. God gave you these urges. Who can expect you realistically to resist? And then those twisted arguments. If you won't give in, Joseph, imagine the scandal. She'll get her revenge, and when she does, imagine how it will reflect on you and on your master. Just give in. It's the logical thing to do. It's really best for everyone involved. Joseph? And then there is that other argument. That argument, by the way, that your session, the very elders of this very church have heard on the very lips of a person who reasoned the way into sin right in front of the elders, saying, God will forgive me. I know it's a sin what I'm going to do. But God will forgive me later. Know your enemies, Christians. And know your enemies' weapons. Temptation is their favorite and so effective because it is, among, among other things, opportunistic, persistent, and persuasive. But knowing and understanding the weapon is not enough. You must also, second, resist. In this way, the example of Joseph is especially instructive. Watch now as he resists temptation and let us learn to do the same. First, Christians, resist temptation with argument. Resist temptation by arguing against it. Literally, you must rehearse, if not to others, at least to your own mind, even in the form of soliloquy, talking to yourself, especially when you're alone. By the way, it's not so weird. You've had a lot of soliloquy in the worship already this morning. We've sung to ourselves in a couple of hymns to our own hearts. Now speak to yourselves and say, My soul, the Lord has died for you. My soul, His precious blood has been shed for you. He has called you. He has saved you. He loves you with a love beyond anything you can know or tell. Surely, reason with your soul. Surely, a son of God 
surely a daughter of such a heavenly father would have him have more of me than this. That I should fail to live up to all the fullness for which he's bought me at the cost of his blood. And then remind your own soul of the glorious rewards, the blessings, the pleasures. Don't be afraid to set pleasures before yourself. The pleasures of of heaven, the pleasures that the Lord has promised to those that far outweigh the pleasures, passing as they are, of this sin or that. Don't be afraid. It is not too much to set God's rewards before your eyes, before your mind's eye. Don't be afraid to obey in order to enjoy a greater reward. After all, God is always making that very argument in his Bible to you. He's always holding out rewards to you if you will obey. If you will resist, I will give you this. If you will fight, if you will be faithful, this is what will be yours. The joys of a man who loves God's law, if he will love it. The treasures that are stored up in heaven for those precisely who will resist storing them up on earth. The hundredfold reward for those who have given up those things precious to them. Not only in this life will they enjoy rewards as the Lord, but in the life to come. Argue the point with yourself. Have an argument with yourself, with your flesh, with the world, and with the devil. One thinks of Martin Luther hurling his inkwell across the room at the devil. Or even better, the one of whom Joseph here is but a picture, a foreshadowing. The one, remember, who in the desert when temptation sees the opportunity of Jesus' hunger when it persisted in its persuasive arguments, when it argued even even twisting God's own word, the one who argued even more strongly from God's word against those temptations. You can read of that great and heroic conflict this afternoon in Matthew chapter 4. fact is, For every temptation you face, there are scores of arguments that you can make against it. Some of them are specific to specific sins, like the way this sin will hurt me, or the way this sin will hurt her, or him, or them. Some arguments are as good for this temptation as they are for that one, the cross of Christ. The presence of the Holy Spirit who is grieved when I sin. The harm it will bring to the testimony of Christ. The addictiveness of this sin that would surely be my ruin if I gave in even once. Don't be afraid to be afraid of sin. And what it might do to you, whatever it is. Argue, Christian, against temptation. Argue and supply your own soul 
with all the reasons why this temptation simply must not, cannot win. Second, we must resist temptation by avoiding it. That's what Joseph does. He makes every attempt to avoid being alone with her, according to verse 10. He would not listen to her. He would not even be with her, as she asked, with that sly question, no doubt to woo him into his bed. Won't you at least just be with me? Just sit down with me. Just chat. It's so reminiscent of the father's instruction to his son that we've heard both in the in the occasional adult Sunday school class on biblical parenting and then in the evenings, Sunday evenings in worship the, uh, from those series on Proverbs. Don't even go near her door. Don't even go near the door of her house. Avoid her. Now admit it, Christian. It's fun to play with temptation. It really is. It's fun. It's, it's, it's daring to get as close to temptation as you possibly can. There's a certain charge. There's a, there's a rush that comes from brushing up against a temptation. Even the Scottish minister of impeccable holiness, McShane, confessed that Satan often tempts me to go as near to temptations as possible without committing the sin. This is fearful. Tempting God and grieving the Holy Spirit. It is a deeply laid plot of Satan. And so, we don't gossip, we insinuate. We don't jump into bed, we just flirt a little bit. Or drive by that place that we know will tempt us. We don't lie, we just phrase it in a way that reflects best on us. But in such courting of temptation, we too often fall and become ourselves Satan's and the world's and our flesh's best ally. And in fact, we become our own worst enemy. Remember Alexander Pope's warning in verse, Vice is a monster of so frightful a mean That to be trusted needs but to be seen, yet seen too oft, familiar with her face. We first endure, and then pity, and then embrace. So we must resist temptation by arguing. We must resist temptation by avoiding. And then third, we must resist temptation by fleeing. Fleeing from it. It may be, dear flock, that some temptation comes to you with such power that you literally may have to change your physical location or the physical circumstances 
You may have to leave the room. You may have to get away from that person. You may have to make some change in your plans. You may even have to suffer some inconvenience, some terrible cost to yourself. Well, do it. And as soon as possible, with all the force of your will, Christian, flee. Don't walk away from temptation. Run. Don't think about and mull over what the consequences of this action might be. Don't wait till later. Now. Act. There comes the crisis and many temptations where it is all or nothing. Flee youthful lusts, Paul said, and that's exactly what Joseph did. He fled so fast. In fact, that Potiphar was, Potiphar's wife was left holding his cloak. Paul tells us, as we read together a little while ago, that God will provide a way out of temptation. He will provide a way out. He has said he would. But that doesn't mean that you sit around waiting for it. That doesn't mean you dally with the temptation until some door flings open. Run, and God will open the door. He opens the way, but He expects you to get off your bottom and run. Now that may sound like defeat, Christian. It may sound like retreat. It isn't. It is victory. When you have escaped the clutches of temptation... That is victory. Dr. Chapel, president of our seminary in St. Louis, says that among God's most gracious provisions for escaping temptation are feet. Charles Spurgeon even more eloquently said, the best answer to many temptations is a good pair of legs and the king's highway. Now, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I'll remind you that earlier in this service, we read together from the law of God in 1 Corinthians 10. We ended with the 13th verse, but uh, the chapter, as many of you know, continues from there. In fact, it goes on to address the Corinthian people on the subject of the Lord's Supper. Why does he do this? Well, the historical reason is that they had introduced idolatry into the Lord's Supper and thereby profaned it. But why in this chapter? Why an exhortation to flee from temptation followed by instruction on the Lord's Supper, on communion? Well, could it be, Christians, that he not only wants us to flee from, but also to flee to? That is, to the Lord, which is precisely what we do here at the Lord's Supper. We enjoy, we bask in the love of God for us. Now, it's hard to imagine a more powerful motivation for obeying the Lord, for fleeing from temptation, for winning against it, than the love of God for us, isn't it? What greater motivation can I supply you than that God loves you? 
with a love unspeakable. With a love, in fact, that would compel him, our Savior, to do this. To lay down his very life. To shed his blood for you. And in your place to suffer all of the wrath of God that was due you precisely for your willingness to give way to temptation. That he should suffer all of that wrath poured upon him for your sin. What greater motivation could there be? I want to read to you a passage from one of Dr. Chappell's books. This wonderful account. Several years ago, my wife Kathy and a friend gathered up their kids and made a trip to the St. Louis Zoo. A new attraction had just opened called Big Cat Country, which took the lions and tigers out of their cages and allowed them to uh, roam in large enclosures. Visitors observed the cats by walking on elevated skyways above the habitats. As my wife and her friend were taking the children up one of the uh, skyway ramps, a blanket became entangled in the wheel of the friend's stroller. Kathy knelt to help untangle the, little, the wheel while our boys, roughly ages three and five, went ahead. When next she looked up, Kathy discovered that the boys had innocently walked right through a child-sized gap in the fencing and had climbed up on the rocks some 20 or 25 feet above the lion's pen. They had been told that they would be able to look down on the lions and they were doing just that from their hazardous vantage point. Pointing to the lions below, they even called back to their mother, Hey mom, we can see them. They had no concept of how much danger they were in. Kathy saw immediately. But now what could she do? If she screamed, she might startle the boys perched precariously above the lions. The gap in the fence was too small for her to get through. So she knelt down, spread out her arms, and said, Boys, come get a hug. They came running for the love that saved them from danger greater than they could perceive. With similar love, our Savior beckons us from temptation that would devour us. Through the elements of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that he knelt down into this world of spiritual jeopardy, spread out his arms upon a cross, and beckoned us to embrace, to an embrace of eternal love that even now calls us from danger. To gaze upon that act of sacrifice is to measure again the matchless love of Jesus and by its magnitude to be drawn from the dangers of temptation into the security of his arms. We find powerfully motivating the warning, guidance, and instruction of him who loves us so. With much wisdom, Charles Spurgeon said, While I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast that I could ever 
have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Amen.